Hello and welcome. My name is Nathan Boyette, pastor of Outreach and Mission here at Annapolis EP Church, and we are so happy that you can join us uh, online for our worship service for April 19th. We're going to be continuing our sermon series on the Gospel of Mark. Today we're going to be reading Mark 13, 24 through 37. So I encourage you in your Bible or on your device to turn to Mark 13, and we'll read that in a moment. This passage occurs within the Passion Week, the time between Jesus' triumphal entry and his death on the cross. Mark 13 is the longest block of teaching in the Gospel of Mark, and it focus, focuses on eschatology, the teaching of the ultimate end of all things, how the Lord God will bring judgment, salvation, and the ultimate destiny of humanity to fulfillment. In chapter 11 to 13, Mark intentionally gathers Jesus' teaching on the temple. Additionally, in Mark 13 too, Jesus predicts the physical destruction of the temple. The disciples ask when that will happen, and Jesus launches into his long teaching on eschatology, and we're going to focus on a small portion of it today and see what lessons it has for our lives. So picking up in verse 24, let's read together. But in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. From the fig tree learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that the summer is near. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening, or at midnight, or when the rooster crows, or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. Let's pray together. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it always has a message for us. You want us to be convicted, encouraged, challenged, and comforted by your word. And we pray that you would speak to us through it today. Holy Spirit, be present here as your word is preached and use it in our lives to help us to follow you better. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. French philosopher Voltaire wrote a scathing satire of religion, theology, and the status quo of his day entitled Candide. The satire follows a young man named Candide. He grows up in a Edenic paradise where he is being taught the philosophy of optimism. This philosophy is that this is the best of all possible worlds. However, Candide leaves his home and is slowly disillusioned as he goes through one painful, horrible experience after another. Voltaire wrote this work in response to another philosopher, a German philosopher, Leibniz. Leibniz maintained that an all-good, all-powerful God had created the world, and that therefore the world must be perfect. When human beings perceive something as wrong or evil, 
It is merely because they do not understand the ultimate good that the so-called evil is meant to serve. Voltaire combats this philosophy by showing how our world is horrible and broken. Both Voltaire and Leibniz are correct. We do have an all-powerful, all-good creator. But at the same time, our world is horribly broken. And that's what the grand story of the Bible, the whole narrative of scripture from Genesis to Revelation shows us. One helpful way to understand that is of the meta-narrative, creation, fall, redemption, restoration. Scripture shows us that God created the world good, perfect, without any sin. But then scripture tells us that humanity rebelled against God and the creation fell. So now it's broken and sin exists. So Leibniz is right that God is good and all-powerful, but Voltaire is also right that creation is horrible and broken and sinful. But that's not the end of the story. Scripture teaches that God wanted to redeem, and so he sent Jesus to purchase redemption by his death and resurrection. And also Scripture teaches that we are waiting for a restoration we live in the already not yet, the in-between times, in between Jesus' redemption and the final restoration that will happen at his second coming. We are waiting for that final consummation and restoration. And that's what Jesus hints at and teaches about in our passage in the entirety of Mark 13. He talks about his second coming. A scholar writing on the Gospel of Mark, James Edwards, writes, unless human history in all its greatness and potential as well as its propensity to evil and destructiveness, can be redeemed, human life is a futile and sordid endeavor. The longing that things ought not to be as they are and cannot be allowed to continue is essentially eschatological longing. The grand finale of the gospel preached by Jesus is that there is a sure hope for the future. It is grounded not in history, but in the word of Jesus, in the declaration that in those days, Humanity will no longer usurp history, but relinquish it to its Lord and maker, who will return in glory and justice to condemn evil and suffering and gather his own to himself. And that's what we're talking about today in our passage, Mark 13. The big idea we're exploring is that the Lord God will graciously restore all things when Jesus returns. So we should live in watchful readiness for his return. Again, the big idea, the Lord God will graciously restore all things when Jesus returns. So we should live in watchful readiness for his return. We're going to explore that big idea through three main points. First, a glorious return. Second, an uncertain timetable. And third, a watchful people. First, a glorious return. Look with me at verse 24 in our Bibles. It says, but in those days, after that tribulation... Jesus here is referring to the earlier prediction of the physical destruction of the temple. The destruction of the temple happened in 70 AD. Jesus here is referring to a distant future, distinct event. He continues in verse 24 to 25, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will be falling from heaven and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. This is not a description of a historical cataclysm but Jesus is intentionally using Old Testament imagery from the prophets. The Old Testament cosmic sign that the end of history would happen used these very words in Isaiah and Joel. 
the prophets spoke about the day of the Lord when God would return and set all things right, where he would judge wickedness and save his people. That's what Jesus is intentionally recalling here with his use of imagery in verse 24 and 25. And in verse 26, he continues, and then they will see the son of man coming in clouds with great power and glory. Again, Jesus continues the use of Old Testament imagery where the cloud was closely associated with God. In the Exodus, as God led his people out of Egypt, he went before them as a cloud. When God descended to dwell among his people in the tabernacle and in the temple, a cloud descended on the tabernacle and the temple. The cloud was associated with God's presence. But specifically here, Jesus is using imagery taken from Daniel 7, where in Daniel 7, 13, the Son of Man comes with the cloud of heaven and is given dominion and glory and a kingdom by the Lord God of heaven. Jesus is associating himself in his second coming with this Old Testament image of the Son of Man being given authority and glory equal to that of God. Jesus is intentionally using tons of Old Testament imagery so his disciples know that what's happening in him and what will happen in him in the future is a fulfillment of God's promises in the Old Testament. And then finally, in verse 27, we see, and then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. Again, another Old Testament image of the Lord gathering his people. The Old Testament prophets spoke again and again about how God would gather the exiles and captives to Jerusalem on the day of the Lord. But here, Jesus does a small shift. They're not being gathered to Jerusalem. Rather, they're being gathered to him, to Jesus. God's people will now find their place in Jesus. Verses 24 to 27 work together to portray a future event where Jesus, the Son of Man, will return in glory and authority and power to gather together God's people to himself. It is also important to emphasize what this glorious vision does not affirm. It does not talk about a millennial kingdom. It doesn't talk about a new Jerusalem, a rebuilt temple. It doesn't talk about a restored state of Israel or a specific timetable of when this will happen. Rather, it merely affirms that there will be a future glorious day of the Lord when Jesus will return. So in summary of this main point, number one, Jesus, the Son of God, made man, even now days away from dying shamefully on the cross, comforts his disciples that he will come in power and glory at a future date. I love the books, The Chronicles of Narnia. The Chronicles of Narnia are a wonderful fiction story about some kids who go to a magical land named Narnia. And in the first one, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, they encounter the great lion Aslan. And C.S. Lewis wove different Christian truths and themes in the Chronicles of Narnia, and Aslan, the great lion, represents Jesus. And he dies on the great stone table for one of the children, Edmund, who had owed a debt to the white witch. And Aslan, because he died and he was an innocent, he freed Edmund from that debt and broke the stone table and came back to life. And Aslan is present throughout the stories, being a comforting presence that calls the children to be good and better than they are. And the children love being with him and delight. And they're always sad when he has to leave or they have to leave to go back to their own place. And in the Chronicles of Narnia, the last book, the last battle, is C.S. Lewis's uh, way of weaving together 
the end of history into his Chronicles of Narnia. And in the last battle, Aslan calls the children back into Narnia for the final time. And they express their sadness to him. Aslan, we, we don't want to go back again to our normal life. We don't want to go back out of your presence. And Aslan says to them, the term is over. The holidays have begun. The dream is ended. This is the morning. And that's his way of saying that this is the beginning of all that you've longed for all along. The hints and the tastes that you've had as you've been in Narnia and been with me are now coming to fulfillment. And C.S. Lewis continues to write, he writes, and as he spoke, he no longer looked to them like a lion, but the things that began to happen after that were so great and beautiful that I cannot write them. And for us, this is the end of all the stories. And we can most truly say that they all lived happily ever after. But for them, it was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. Now at last, they were beginning chapter one of the great story, which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. And I love this fictional portrayer, portrayal of Jesus's return because it actually ca accurately captures how our life, while important, is merely the cover and title page of the true eternal story, the story of how we will spend eternity with our God, our creator, our savior, and that each day in that true story that has yet to come will be better and better than the day before. Jesus will return one day. He has purchased our salvation, and we enjoy that through faith. But that salvation has not been fully consummated. We await the final restoration of all things. We've been saved, but still sin still exists. It exists in our world, and it exists in our lives. We need and long for that final restoration. This should be our hope, the hope of Jesus' final return and the restoration of everything to God's original good intentions. Is this where we put our hope? This hope will overcome financial stress, cancer, sickness, coronavirus, family dysfunction, loss of a loved one, shattered dreams, shattered expectations, depression, anxiety, and fear. Those cannot overcome this hope. We have a sure and certain hope. Our Lord and Savior Jesus will return and restore all things one day. There will be no more sin, no more death, no more brokenness. We will be restored to the peace and harmony for which we were created, restored to the relationship with our triune God and with others that we long for. And these truths should be the hope that helps us overcome fear and anxiety in the times of coronavirus, financial distress, and other difficulties. So we move on to our second point, an uncertain timetable. As Jesus' teaching about the future continues, it would only be natural for the disciples to question, when are all these things going to happen, Jesus? And he gives his disciples an immediate answer to when the physical destruction of the temple will occur. But that only serves to highlight the uncertain timetable of when Jesus' final return and the final restoration are going to happen. Look in verse 28 with me. It says, from the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. Jesus uses the fig tree as an example. This is not the fig tree that he cursed in Mark 11, 
that withered and died. No, this is just Jesus using an example of a fig tree and how its leaves came out before summer to help them understand an important lesson. You see, the fig tree would blossom with leaves right on the cusp of summer at the end of spring. The fig tree's leaves and their relation to summer was a lesson by Jesus to teach the disciples to know that the immediacy of something, you can know the immediacy of something without knowing the exact timing of something. We might not know exactly when something's going to happen, but we can know that it's coming soon. So he continues in verse 29, So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near at the very gates. These things in verse 29 is Jesus referring back to Mark 13, 2 and a couple of his teachings after that about the destruction of the temple and the destruction of Jerusalem. The he of verse 29 is the unknown abomination of desolation that we didn't read about that's earlier in Mark 13. There are many interpretations of who this person is, but this abomination of desolation leads to the destruction of the temple. But the clear teaching of the entirety of Mark 13 is that the temple's destruction was predicted by Jesus as a warning for the disciples and subsequent Christians who would live in Jerusalem. That's why in verse 30 we read, Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Jesus is saying, some of my disciples, some of you who will hear this teaching from my lips will still be alive when the destruction of the temple and the fall of Jerusalem happens. And that's exactly what happened. The Roman Empire destroyed the temple and conquered Jerusalem and it fell in 70 AD and all of the Jewish people had to disperse away from there along with all of the Christians. Commentators have noted that this destruction and the fall of Jerusalem serve as a mysterious paradigm for the end of the world. In Mark 13, we see the final judgment and salvation, which will happen in Jesus' second coming, intermingled with the nearer destruction of Jerusalem. God will bring judgment and destruction on Jerusalem in the life of Jesus' disciples, but the final judgment and salvation for the whole world is yet to come. It's more distant. In verse 31, we read, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Jesus teaches us that his word is more enduring than creation. He says that my word will outlast the heavens and the earth. This is a bold claim to divine authority here. In verse 28 to 31, the teaching on the destruction of the temple only highlights the uncertain timetable of Jesus's final return. And that can be seen in verse 32, where we read, but concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the son, but only the father. There's a shift in topic here to the final second coming of Christ, which will accompany the Lord's judgment and salvation. You see, in verse 32, it goes from those days, these things, plural, to a singular day. And that's because, as I mentioned earlier, the Old Testament commonly spoke of the day of the Lord, a specific singular event. And that's what Jesus is referencing here. But he says, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Only the Father knows the day of Jesus' second coming. This is the only reference in Mark to Jesus as simply the Son, 
And it's a bold assertion of Jesus' divinity, of his sonship. Contained in this assertion is also an ironic paradox. Jesus confesses his limitations. He says he doesn't know the time of the end. He says only the Father does. And some people find this difficult to accept. How can the Son of God not know something? But rather than a paradox that trips us up, this should be an encouragement because God, the Son of God, has amazingly condescended to be like us, to become human as we are human. Jesus accepted human limitation and fully relinquished control into the Father's hand and submitted to, the gather, to God the Father's will and timing. This is so not something to be confused about, but rather it's an example to follow. George Mambio, he is a, an eco, eco, ecological uh, activist and journalist. He studied zoology. He's from England, and he wrote recently in The Guardian that the coronavirus is a wake-up call for a complacent civilization. He says, we have been living in a bubble, a bubble of false comfort and denial. In the rich nations, we have begun to believe that we have transcended the material world. The wealth we have accumulated, often at the expense of others, has shielded us from reality. Living behind screens, passing between capsules, our houses, cars, offices, and shopping malls, we persuaded ourselves that contingency had retreated, that we had reached the point all civilizations seek, insulation from natural hazard. Now the membrane has ruptured, the bubble has burst, and we find ourselves naked and outraged as the biology we appeared to have banished storms through our lives. The temptation when this coronavirus pandemic has passed will be to find another bubble, he writes. We cannot afford to succumb to it. From now on, we should expose our minds to the painful realities we have denied for too long. And for Mambio, what he says are the painful realities that we need to think about is that we are contingent, dependent beings. But for him, the solution is to all this problem is for us to see ourselves as contingent and dependent on the natural, natural world. He doesn't see a place for God, the creator in this. He rather calls us to action, to halt climate change, curtail the overuse of antibiotics and the ethical use of our natural resources. Those are all worthy goals that I'm very happy to endorse, but Mambio misses the lesson here. The lesson of the coronavirus is not merely that we are contingent and dependent on the earth, on the natural world. No, the lesson we need to learn is that we are human and we are dependent on our God and our creator. We need to learn that we must follow Jesus' example of living life in reliance on God. The lesson for us from verse 28 to 32 is the lesson of the ironic paradox of Jesus's becoming human. Just as Jesus accepted human limitation, we need to accept human li limitation. As Jesus relinquished control to God the Father, we need to relinquish control to God the Father. As Jesus submitted himself to the Father's hand, to the Father's timing and will, so we also need to submit ourselves to God the Father's timing and will. Too often we have not done this. Too often I have not done this. So we need to confess and repent when we have not accepted our limitation, when we have not relinquished control. The timetable of Jesus' return is uncertain, but the reality is certain. Jesus will return one day. That is something we can hope in, and we need to look forward to it 
while relinquishing control and submitting to the Father's will. And that leads us to our final point, that we are a watchful people. As we turn to our final point, let me summarize again. Jesus, the Son of God, will gloriously return in the future, at which point judgment and salvation and the restoration of all things will finally be fulfilled. And this will definitely, certainly happen, but the timetable is uncertain. We don't know when it will happen. Only God the Father does. And this should lead us to wonder, what does that mean for us, for God's people in the meantime, as we wait? Jesus' teaching on eschatology in Mark 13 culminates in a command in verses 33 to 37. In verse 33, he commands, be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. Jesus' teaching on eschatology culminates in the command to alert, to be alert, to watch and wait. In Mark 13, Jesus admonishes and commands his disciples six times to be alert and watchful. In our passage alone, verses 33, 35, and 37, he commands, be alert, be watchful. As is so often Jesus' practice, he illustrates his point with a small story. In verse 34, we read, it is like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. In this story, the doorkeeper has only one job, to wait in ready watchfulness for the master to return. He continues the story in verse 35, therefore stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or in the morning. Jesus continues the story by emphasizing that the master could suddenly return at any time. And so he calls them to stay awake. And he uses four traditional Roman watches of the night to emphasize that it could be suddenly when you least expect it. The master's return is obviously connected to Jesus' second return. Mentioned earlier in the passage, Jesus is the master. We are the servants. In verse 36, he gives a warning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. That warning is for his disciples. That warning is for us. In verse 37, he concludes his teaching on eschatology with a final command. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. Jesus concludes with a final exhortation to stay awake and be watchful. This exhortation is personal here. As Jesus spoke, his speech transitioned from an impersonal illustrative story to a personal call to his disciples, to his listeners, to take part, to wait and watch as servants. And he says it not merely to the disciples listening at that time. He says it to each one of us. He says it to all. The return of the master is Jesus's return. All of this combines to emphasize for the disciples and for us that we are to live lives of constant readiness. We do not know when the end will come. We don't know when Jesus will return his second time for final judgment, salvation, and restoration. So we, so we should live in alert watchfulness, doing as he instructed while he was here. We have been called to live in constant readiness prepared for the Lord's return. The way we live for Christ's return is to live faithfully in the present as his servants. What instructions did Christ give to us while he, he was here? He gave us many, just a few. He called us to love one another. He called us to go out and make disciples of all nations and so much more. But I want to focus on something he told us that's in this passage. He called us to be servants, to be stewards. In verse 34, the master put his servants in charge each with his work. 
We are servants of God, slaves even, and we have been given a charge and a work to be his stewards in this earth. The reality is that everything we have is from him. He is the master. Everything we have is a gift from God. Our very lives, our money, our resources, our time, our relationships, our families. There's not one thing we have that is not a gift to us from God's hand. We are stewards of everything that we have. If everything we have is from him, then how we live in every sphere and in every decision should be influenced by the Lord, by his plans, by his will, and especially by the fact that the Lord will return one day. He commanded us to be good stewards of our talents, money, time, of our very lives. We need to live as stewards not merely with the present life in mind, but with eternity in mind, with Christ's imminent return in mind. Living in light of eternity as a steward should impact our financial decision. It should impact the type of companies we invest in. It should impact how much money we save, how much tithes we give, how much people we help. It should impact how we use our financial resources, how big of a house we buy, the type of car we buy, should all be impacted in light of eternity. It should impact how we live as parents. It should impact how we raise our kids, if we are merely raising them to be good children, behaving well, to eventually be successful in life, then we are missing the point. Are we raising them in light of the fact that Jesus will return and our children should be disciples of Jesus just as we are? It should impact how we live our lives as children ourselves. How we honor our parents and take care of them should be impacted by the fact that Christ will return. It should impact how we do our work. Are we working diligently, hard, doing our best to serve our employer and glorify God through everything that we do? If we're living in light of the fact that Christ will return, then we will. It should impact how we live our lives with our neighbors. Are they just a person who lives next to us and shares a piece of our uh, property with us, or do we view them as a person created in God's image who we want to love and serve and build a deeper relationship with so that they eventually come to know the Jesus who will return one day. Christ's imminent return should impact how we live as spouses, how we live as a husband or a wife. It should impact the fact that we want to love and serve our spouse so that they will flourish in their Christian life and in everything they try to do. Living in life, living life in light of Christ's return should impact how we serve our church, how we use our time, our skills, our money for our church's good. We as a church need everyone. We are not merely individuals who come to church on a Sunday and then go our separate ways. We are the body of Christ who are being gathered together for a purpose. Living life in light of Christ's return should impact how we want to be invested in our church community. Finally, it should impact how we want to serve the greater Annapolis community. We should want the best for our city because we know that Christ will return one day and every single individual will be judged or saved. Living in watchful readiness should shape and impact everything that we do. If we knew that Christ was returning next year, next month, tomorrow, we would live incredibly different lives 
than we do every day, most likely. See, we live in a wonderful, beautiful, yet tragically broken world. God created all things beautiful and good, but humanity's rebellion, our sin, caused that good creation to fall and become broken. Sin is in opposition to God, and by his very character, he must punish it. And the punishment for sin is death. However, God did not want that to be the end of the story. God is motivated by love and a desire to bless his creation. And so those sin had broken his good creation, God set out to redeem and restore it. And so he sent Jesus to die on the cross in our place and redeem by his blood us, humans, and the very creation. We have been redeemed, but we are waiting for the final restoration of when Jesus comes back a second time in this in-between time, we live in hope that Christ will return, waiting and watching for our Lord's return. But our watchful waiting is one of faithful stewardship, living our entire lives for God's glory and his purposes. Let's pray together. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you call us to be contingent, dependent humans, relying on you, relinquishing control to you, submitting to your timing and your will. We pray, Lord God, that we would remember that, that we are your creatures and that that is a good thing. We thank you so much, Jesus, that you have redeemed creation, have redeemed each one of us so that we can be restored to a right relationship with the Father. And even though we live in the in-between times where sin still exists, we eagerly look forward to the day when you will return and restore all things. We pray that we could have that hope and that in the present, we would live as faithful stewards who are watching and waiting for your return. Please bless us as we go out from here and help us to live today as your stewards, eagerly awaiting your return. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.